Well, as you may have noticed from your bulletin, maybe you did not, but you may have noticed that I was actually going to try to preach on the trial of Jesus today, this two days before Christmas. I was really optimistic. In fact, I thought up until Friday afternoon, somehow I could make the trial of Jesus connect to the birth of Jesus and make it Christmassy. I couldn't do it. So, uh, I'm sure there's a way because it's all tied together and I obviously could make the obvious connections, but 12 o'clock Friday, I said, Uncle, I can't do it. You know it's a bad sign when you're starting to get angry as you study the Bible. And so I thought, you know, this is just not working. I'm trying to make something here that's not meant to be made here. Uh, maybe we'll do that another time. And so I said, ah, we'll go to Matthew 2 because I don't want to be labeled as the Scrooge or something like that. And so remember, it is all tied together because he did come as the Savior, and we'll talk more about that. And ultimately, that is why, in fact, he was tried and found guilty, though he was innocent. And certainly those things could be talked about. But this morning... Uh, we'll be a little bit more traditional, and we will talk about the birth of Jesus. And if you have a Bible, you can turn back to Matthew chapter 2, where we will see two different responses to the birth of Jesus. And ultimately, in the end, there are two different responses to the birth of Jesus. There are two responses to Jesus, period. Uh, we don't need to go to the mall and interview people, though we could do that. We could do it right now. Uh, I saw Best Buy was open on my way here. Who knows what time they opened? Uh, hopefully, you don't know. Um, maybe they were open all night. I have no idea. But we could go there right now. I could have stopped there this morning and interviewed people. And you would find out rather quickly that they uh, are either people who love Jesus and they worship Him as a result of Him coming here to earth and doing what He did, or they reject Him. Now, there are all kinds of different variants of rejecting. But in the end, even though we'll see variants in Matthew chapter 2, there are two responses. There's a response of worship and there's a response of rejection. And we'll look at both of those responses. The worship response, the first response, comes to us through the wise men. And with a little bit of sarcasm, I would like to suggest and and say that since we already know all we need to know about the wise men, and we've got all that figured out, I don't even need to introduce them to you or give you any background information before we look at their right response. Ha! Ha! (laughs) Maybe just to get us warmed up this morning, before we actually look at their right response, uh, let's think about who the wise men were, and let me do it in hopefully a creative way. I've given this quiz before, I'm going to give it again. It's a quiz I call Truth or Tradition. Truth meaning this is what the Bible says. Tradition, this means it's what the song says, or whatever it may be. So, let's see how you do. Truth or Tradition. There were three wise men. Class? That's tradition. It doesn't say there were three. There were three gifts, so that's probably how we got the fact that there were three wise men. But we don't know how many there were. It says they. So there may have been two. There's more than one. Uh, just for the sake of making the point. Or there could have been 202. Uh, there were multiple wise men. How are you doing so far? Well, there's more. You might be able to do better. I almost said redeem yourself, but that would be bad theology. So truth or tradition. The wise men were kings. Tradition. The wise men were kings. I realize that really messes up the song, perhaps. Um, you know, we have uh, the, the three kings. Well, it doesn't say they were kings. Uh, it's true the Old Testament said that kings would worship Messiah. That's absolutely the case. But that doesn't have to be the case here. 
When you look at the inspired text of Matthew 2, you don't see that they're kings. When you look at history, you don't see that they're kings. You see that they're high-ranking officials. You could call them influential. You could call them dignitaries. But I like what one New Testament scholar said when he put it this way. The ancient magi were religious and political advisors to eastern kings. But there wasn't, I like the way he put it, there wasn't a drop of blue blood among them. Now, having said that, next to these, I almost said three, see, I'm so twisted and distorted. Next, next to these magi, these wise men, who's the most famous, famous wise man we know? Who's the most famous magi we know? Any guesses? Daniel. Some of you got it. Some of you paid attention in Sunday school and you went to the right Sunday school class. Daniel was the most famous wise man we know. He, he's of the same, same background of the, as these kinds of individuals. Listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 12. It says, because of this, and that is the fact that no one could tell the king his dream, because of this, the king became indignant or angry and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Chapter 2, verse 12. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Daniel was a magi. Daniel was a wise man. Now, we have to speed ahead because we're some 500 years later, but we don't conclude that they're kings. How are you doing so far? Truth or tradition? The magi came to the stable to see Jesus in the manger. It's tradition. I realize that messes up some of your yard art. Uh, I realize... <laughs> That might mess up some of your uh, nativity scenes. Um, but the fact of the matter is, whether it's historical or biblical, one and the same, uh, look at Matthew 2.1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it's Matthew 2.1. Matthew 2.11, I put dot, dot, dot after chapter 2, verse 1. Still in the same context, verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. If you go to Luke's account, it's after Jesus was circumcised and after He was presented in the temple. So it was either several months. It could have even been a couple of years later. Maybe pushing it a bit. But the reason we would say it could have been a couple of years later because in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, you have Herod killing all the baby boys from two years and under now, realize he may just be really extending it there, but there was some sort of motivation why he would do two years and under. So again, I apologize for what this does to your, to your yard or to your house. Um, you know what you could do? Here's a suggestion. You could take those big plastic lit non-kings that you have in your yard that you call kings, and you can put them inside, right? And that kind of gives you the right feel because they came to see Jesus in the house, Right? <laughs> So what you'll do is, for now, you leave the manger scene, Joseph and Mary and the animals, out in your yard, all lit up, looking like, I'm not even going to say what. So you've got all that, and then you bring, the, bring the, the, the wise men, and you probably want to put one in the attic, because three, you're just further solidifying the bad stereotypes. So put one away and you have two, okay? Or buy another set and have six, or just do something. And so then what you can do is uh, then maybe later you can bring Jesus inside because they saw him in a house later. Well, I'm just trying to be funny. But, you know, if nothing else, you'll have good conversation maybe with family members 
about what is and isn't true in the Bible. And, you know, if these are some of the most well-known figures in all of the Bible, I would hate to think what we know about the other 99%. Because we haven't a clue about these wise men or magi. I remember one season, tactful, wise, prudent, you know, letting my mother-in-law know these things. You know, coming home for Christmas from seminary. And, uh, <laughs> oh, by the way, mother-in-law, um, did you realize that your nativity's all screwed up? You know, <laughs> I didn't quite say it like that, but that's how it came across, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, it got her to blow the dust off of her Bible and look and see, you know, what's really true. It's, it's actually true that this worked out later and it happened a little bit differently than we thought. And uh, I think she even maybe put the, put the wise men on the other side of the room. And I was like, cool. Maybe just to make her son-in-law happy or something. So anyway, some of you have some rearranging to do when you get home. (laughs) All joking aside, I was going to say that helps us to know the wise men a little bit better, but I'm not sure if it does. (laughs) Let's see that they do the right thing. Okay? They do the right thing. They worship Jesus when He is born. And I'm not trying to put some sort of Christian spin on how we should read this account. If you just read the Gospel according to Matthew as literature, just read it through. If you're a person who doesn't believe the Bible but you appreciate ancient literature and you pay attention to the laws of grammar and syntax and and you just read it through, it's not a stretch to conclude that the wise men did the right thing. The right thing to do when you consider the birth of Jesus is to worship Him. That's the authorial intent. That is the design of Matthew as he's writing this account of what's happening. We are supposed to say, they were right. We should try to be like them. They worship Him as He is born. And so I don't make any excuses or apologies for saying ultimate motivation here, application for the sermon, at least point one, is to see that the right thing to do in response to the birth of Jesus is to worship Jesus. And we see that so clearly with the wise men who are trying to get to know a little bit better. Let's go ahead and, and, and look at verse 1 of chapter 2. The, the, the response is worship. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east, likely Babylon or Persia, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to, there's our operative word, we've come to worship him. Here the dignitaries come and and they're showing up. And what are they showing up to do? They're showing up to worship. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, how did they know? Well, they're following the star. There's just a supernatural revelation from God and they're following the star. But how did they know to follow the star? How did they know that they're supposed to come and they're supposed to worship Him? And, and the, the text doesn't tell us. Somehow, God is at work in, in, in revealing Himself to them so that they would know this is the right thing and so that they would respond. Who knows? Maybe they were reading literature. They were reading prophecy from one of the old magi. From, from one of the old wise men, maybe they were, they were getting in touch with their history and connecting or they're knowing or remembering their history and realizing that Daniel, one of them, 
some 500 years before, Daniel chapter 9, spoke of this very one who would be born. However it is, they're on the right track. They are on the right track. They are headed, they're following the star, and they are headed there to worship Him. And it's impressive, and we see right away this is the right thing. In verse 9, if we can keep reading a bit, dropping down to that verse, it says, After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, again, somehow supernaturally moving here, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And again, I submit to you, that we're not trying to read into it to see. That's the, that's the right response. I mean, that resonates inside of us and we say, that's right. We said, this is, they're rejoicing and they're not just rejoicing, they're rejoicing exceedingly and they're rejoicingly, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. I can't even say it. And it resonates with us and we say, that is the right response. That's the good and appropriate response. And then verse 11 says, if you look, you'll see there, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They see Mary. They see Jesus. They see everything there. Those are the two mentioned. And they worship. They worship Jesus. This is a great picture. This is a great description. Now, who's supposed to be worshipped? God is supposed to be worshipped. You read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament. God is supposed to be worshipped to the point where only God is supposed to be worshipped. Like in Revelation chapter 22, is the passage that comes to my mind right away. It's, only, it's reserved for God. And here are these magi, these wise men, these astrologers, these strange guys. They show up and they are worshipping the baby, which is peculiar. It's peculiar for a lot of different reasons. They're worshiping the baby. Well, that's impressive and we think that that's right based upon the whole account of Matthew. But, but it is peculiar to think about who they are. I mean, it's just like God, and especially when we're going to see the Jewish leaders and we're going to see others involved and the Jewish populace not doing this. So the Magi, at great cost, follow a star and they show up and they worship Jesus and then they're going to give Him great gifts. This is, this is, this is like God because it's peculiar. Magi are they're, they're astrologers. I mean, these aren't, the, these aren't the religious leaders of the Jews. I don't know how they got this revelation from God to put them on the right track. Somehow someone told them the biblical reality of this one who is going to come. But how they internalized that and now they're on the right track is very odd. It's very strange. Someone suggested in a more formalized form, their religion would have been something more along the lines of Zoroastrianism. <sighs> Say what? And you know, I think that's significant to think about because... Therefore, there's something about the wise men that's a put-off to us. They're the weird guys associated with the wrong religion. I don't want to be like the Zoroastrianists. 
That's just strange. That's not even the right religion. I'm about as close as I've ever come to Zoroastrianism as I, I ate in a Zoroastrian restaurant one time and ate water buffalo. And that was weird. I, there's nothing about it that I, I want to be like a Zoroastrianist. Well, by doing what they're doing, they're leaving that background and they're, they're, they're going to worship Messiah. They're, they're worshiping the one who is God with us. But it's very odd that God chooses them to model for us doing the right thing. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 2. That God chooses the peculiar at times to model for us and to do the right thing. And that's exactly what's happening here. And what do they do? In their worship, in verse 11, it goes on to say, Then opening their treasures, they presented to Him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You could just summarize that given the cultural difference. They're giving Him what's valuable. They're giving Him their best. They're giving Him the best gifts they could possibly give. Gold makes sense to us. Frankincense and myrrh, we don't quite get it. These are, these are great fragrances that are costly and valuable. And they're, they're giving them to Jesus as acts of worship of, to Jesus. Something has happened in their lives where they've been transformed. They've received revelation about who Jesus really is and they're responding the right way and they end up being our model. They're loving Him. They're devoting themselves to Him. We see further devotion in verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. You say, how is that showing further devotion to Jesus and worship to Jesus? Well, they listened to God. They disobey Herod, which means they're in danger. And they take the long way home. Maybe that's trivial. The first two aren't trivial. They are sold out and committed to worshiping Jesus Christ. They're worshiping the one who is Matthew one twenty three, Emmanuel, God with us. However God worked along the way, whether it be through reading what Daniel had written a long time ago, or through intersecting with Jews who told them the biblical truth, or however it was, God worked in their hearts, they responded the right way, went to great lengths to go and worship Jesus, the God-man who was born. Moral of the story, you should too. Moral of the story, I should too. Moral of the story is, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is great, And when you consider Him coming into this world, you say, I worship Him. He's great. And you know, we could tie into this Matthew 1, 21, which we talked about last time. Why did He come? So that God could be with us? Well, so that God could be with us, yes, but ultimately it's so He could what? He could save His people from their sins. We should worship Him because He's the baby, yes, who grew up, yes, who spoke the truth, yes, who then died in our place, yes, and rose again from the dead, yes, 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 yes. I love the birth of Jesus. I love thinking about it. I want to be like the Magi. I want to be a worshiper of Jesus and go to great lengths to do that very thing. Well, let's move on now, and I I hate to end on the negative, so we'll try to make it positive at the very end. That's the right response. Let's talk about the wrong response. And it has many different faces. The first face we see in the wrong response is the response of Herod. And he rejects Jesus because of his self-centeredness. Look at verse 3 with me if you would. When, or even more blatantly, but when, showing contrast, but when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. 
Why was he troubled? Why would this bug Herod the king? Well, verse 2 gave us the answer, gives us the answer. Where is he who has been born? They were saying, King of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. If you're Herod, you've got a problem with that because they're coming and they see him as the king of the Jews. You're King Herod. You're King Herod and you consider yourself king of the Jews. And they're coming to worship Him. You're Herod, the, to use my favorite word in the English language, megalomaniac. Herod was self-consumed to the nth degree. Herod wanted it to be all about him. He's the king of the Jews. Oh, let's just push it a little further. I'm the object of worship and devotion as one who rules Palestine under Roman authority. It's about me. And so when I hear of someone coming as king of the Jews and they're worshiping him, I've got a problem with that. And he's going to reject this Christ. Herod was no doubt self-consumed. Herod was so self-consumed that he had his own sons killed. Herod was self-consumed to the point of having his wife killed. Herod was self-consumed to the point where when he was going to die... And he assumed that the people wouldn't mourn his death. He had all kinds of other people killed. So at least when he died, people would be mourning. Somehow honoring himself. This is the wrong response to Jesus. It's clear as can be. He's rejecting the sovereignty of Jesus because he sees himself as sovereign. This is why he has the schemes that he does. Look at verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. We'll talk about them in a little bit. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Looks good so far. Well, then he finds out. Then verse 7. Look there. Then Herod secretly, probably because he didn't want anybody else to even think that Jesus was born and, and he was the one who was the Savior, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, lest they go follow him. Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and kill him. I mean, um, uh, worship him. Right? That's how it was going down. He's not coming to worship Jesus. If you drop down to verse 16, we've already mentioned it. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem. And all its vicinity for from two years old and under. That's what he wants to do. The stark intentional contrast is worship by the Zoroastrianists, who should know better if they're going to be faithful to Zoroastrianism. And they've abandoned that for devotion and worship to the one true God by the grace of God. Contrast Herod. He wants it to be all about him to the point where he's going to have all the babies two years under, two years and under, killed in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not very big. That might have been, historians guess, 20 babies, but one is enough. One is enough, especially when it is purposefully directed toward trying to kill Emmanuel, God with us. Herod was a bad fellow. He deserves the title megalomaniac. This is the slaughter of the innocents if there ever was. But before we go on, 
if I can maybe trouble you a little bit more. We're troubled by the fact that this Herod was a bad guy. and Most of us here love Jesus, so we really don't like him. We're troubled by the fact that he would have babies slaughtered. We don't like Herod. He was against Jesus. We got this figured out. Wise men, good. Herod, bad. Class, good job. But before it's that nice and neat, if I could suggest to you that apart from the grace of God intervening in your heart, in your life, you're a lot more like Herod than you realize. And I'm a lot more like Herod than I realize. And again, I'm not trying to read some kind of theology into this. Because if you read all of Matthew's Gospel account, which is how it was designed to be read, when we get to the end, the pagan leader says, Jesus is innocent. He's free to go. It's the people, the us's, if I can violate English, who say what? Matthew 27. What do they say? Crucify Him! That's their chant. Crucify Him! Kill Him! Folks, this is disturbing. The general populace of Israel the garden variety Jew. That would be us as far as belonging to the right religion, saying they're waiting for the right guy. (laughs) They're doing the very thing that Herod did. At least they're calling for the same thing Herod called for. That's troubling. But again, it just makes the, the line so clear and it's so helpful and it's so good for us because it causes us to see how good the grace of God is. You know, we're not morally neutral. We cry, we cry. Read about it in Matthew 27. The people, crucify Him, crucify Him. That's us. We're little Herods, little megalomaniacs, maybe with a small case M. We like it our way and we want Messiah on our terms. And I say, God, you're so gracious to have us even have any kind of desire to say, we want to worship Jesus? It's the grace of God that causes us even inside to feel compelled to say, the wise men were doing the right thing. I want to be like them and I want to worship Jesus. I want to worship the God-man. This just causes us to say, God is gracious. It's not that we're so smart. It's that God is so gracious to even give us such a desire in our hearts. Does that make any sense? just magnifies the grace of God at our expense. Crucify Him. Well, rejection comes with another face. And that's the face of the populace. I'm going to label the populace as cowards. Rejection via cowardice. Herod's not the only one who rejects. The general population, not just in Matthew 27, even here, is going to reject Jesus because they're not going to worship Him and they're going to be afraid. They're going to be afraid to worship Him. They're going to be cowards. 
Look with me again, if you would, at verse 3. In verse 3, partially through the verse, it says, When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. We got that part down, but usually we, then we just skip over the rest. And all Jerusalem with him. Have you ever thought about that before? Oh, sure, we understand why Herod is bugged. All Jerusalem is bugged. They're not all saying, let's be like the wise men and pursue at great cost to ourselves and let's go worship Him and give Him our very best. It says all Jerusalem, it doesn't say bugged, I know, is troubled. Why would they all be troubled? Well, for starters, a good guess would be they know something of Herod's temperament. They know that, that, that Herod is this megalomaniac and he, and he is self-consumed. And they know when there's any kind of threat to Herod, he starts killing people. And so they're troubled. Yeah, Herod's troubled on one level. They're, they're troubled on another level. And again, the text doesn't say that. Maybe they're troubled on other levels as well. But certainly that would be unsettling. And you say, how could that be rejecting Jesus? How, how, how could that be the case? Well, you, again, all right, I'm going to worship Jesus. And what am I doing if I'm not worshiping Jesus? Well, I'm rejecting Jesus. Yeah, but they weren't calling crucify Him yet, but they will. They will. Worshiping, going this direction, or not going this direction. So at this level, we would say it's not as heinous, it's not as high-handed, it's not as grotesque, and all of those things as Herod. They're not worshiping Jesus either. And they will, in time, call for His crucifixion. They're cowards, right? Wouldn't we all say they're cowards? If you're looking for a label, they were afraid, perhaps because of the pressure from the government. They're afraid because if they are caught going after this Jesus, certainly worshiping Him, Herod won't like it. And so, they'll keep talking about Messiah and how they're waiting for Messiah and, oh, we love Messiah. And they'll keep quoting Bible verses and they just won't go worship Messiah. They're cowards. Well, I think I could get most people to sign off on the cowardice thing. But if I could, I could trouble you a little bit more. And by the way, I think being troubled is good because it forces us to figure out where we really are and where we're needing to be. To be a coward in relationship to following Christ or not following Christ is not a good position to be in. I can't think of a clearer passage than Revelation chapter 21. And if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 21. There, there are cowards. Well, what kind of category do cowards fit into? And not, these aren't just ordinary run-of-the-mill cowards. Specifically, let's talk about being a coward when it comes to, am I going to follow Jesus and worship Him? Or am I not going to because the ramifications might be too severe? And if I could suggest a cross-reference, it's Revelation 21.8. The scene is God's great judgment, the lake of fire. This is for unbelievers. It says, for the cowardly, Revelation 21.8, and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns 
lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I don't know about you, but first time I read that verse in the Bible, or maybe I forgot and reread it, and you think, wow. You mean idolaters and murderers are put in the same category as cowards? I mean, we're pretty comfortable with the fact that murderers go to hell. Cowards go to hell? Certainly in the context of I'm going to worship Jesus or not because if I do, I'm perhaps in too much trouble. That is unsettling. That is troubling. It might be to the point where you think, you know what, well, if I were doing all this stuff, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, the next time you create a universe and set up all the standards of justice and it's all about you because you're God, you know what? Maybe you can take cowards off the list. If God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. If God has revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus, He wants us to worship Him. And if we're too afraid to worship Him, because of the pressure from the government, or how about the pressure from your friends? Or how about the pressure from your family members, or whatever it might be? This is very pertinent. Happens over and over again. Somebody even sees Jesus for who He is, at least on the surface of it. It makes sense. Oh, this is right. I can see it now. This is so good. Just like the Jewish people would have, at least on the surface of things. They believed the Bible. They believed in coming Messiah. They said they were committed to Him. But you know what? When the pressure came, they were cowards. They were Revelation 21 kinds of people. Because it showed that they really weren't embracing Him. Because if they really were, nothing could stop them. Nothing. So again, I'm not trying to be Scroogeish in a Christian message or a Christmas message. But again, it's so helpful and so healthy to be troubled if need be and to be troubled to the point of saying, I've got to do something by the grace of God to not be in this state. It is so helpful, as strange as it sounds, when I go to the doctor and they say, you have more skin cancer. When would you like to schedule the surgery to have it taken off? Oh, by the way, it's the good kind of skin cancer. I'm like, great. I can't wait to have you cut me open again and sew me up what feels like, you know, a football. You know, I, oh, that was nice. But you know what? I'm glad. So, all right. I got the January appointment where they're going to slice me open and sew me up like a football again. And I'm thinking, I'm so glad they told me I have skin cancer. Well, I'm actually not. I don't actually even want to go. And I said, how far can we delay this? Let's wait till winter while I'm not doing water sports. But the analogy would be, when you go to the doctor, you don't necessarily like the uncomfortable news that you get, but it's necessary if there's going to be some kind of solution. So if you're troubled and bothered because you're a coward, I'm so thrilled by that. Thank you for letting me love you today. Just as an ethical doctor shows you 
love by saying, here's what's really true. Let's seek a solution. Right? It just makes good sense. Worshiping Jesus, rejecting, whether it's through total self-centeredness or through cowardice, there's another face to the rejection. And that would be the face of the religious leaders. Look with me, if you would, at verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests, Matthew 2, 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Looks pretty good on the surface. He's going to find the religious leaders who, how about this, who know the Bible and whose job it is to tell people what the Bible says. Herod's going to find them so that they can tell him what the Bible says. And what's so impressive and encouraging, at least on the surface, is they know what the Bible says. Let's see. Look at verse 5. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by, or even better yet, through the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Taken from Micah 5.2, informed from 2 Samuel 5.2 as well. I'm so impressed. Isn't this what religious leaders are supposed to do? Isn't what, it's what they're supposed to be able to do. You have a question about what God says? You should be able to go to a religious leader and say, what does God say about this? And these guys did such a great job. They quoted the Bible. Gave the answer. To the point where you might even be thinking, Pat, you put them in the wrong category. You've got the Magi worshiping, and you've got Herod, and you've got the populace not worshiping. <laughs> These guys are just giving Bible verses. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Put them with the worshipers. Come on, Pat, it's Christmas. <laughs> well, if you keep reading after verse 6, what you won't find, you won't find it in the white spaces, you won't find after verse 6, these religious leaders who knew the biblical answer like that. You won't find them worshiping Jesus. Isn't that weird? It's startling. It should be startling. It should scream off the page. They know the right answer. They know what to do and they don't do it. They know the biblical thing to do and they don't worship Jesus. And if you think I'm reading way too much into it, just keep reading the account. They most certainly don't worship Jesus. And given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, they make clear they're not worshipers of Jesus. They're rejectors of Jesus as well. Please don't think that because you can ask me a Bible question and I can give you Bible verses in response, 
even the right Bible verses in response, please don't conclude that I am a worshiper of Jesus. That's a risky request, but it's worth it. Please don't conclude that because someone is a religious leader and they can give you Bible verses, even the right Bible verses, that they are worshipers of Jesus. Well, so far most of you are comfortable because I pointed the finger at myself and I pointed the finger at leaders but it's certainly not a stretch for me then to say, please don't conclude that because you know the nativity narrative, because you know the right verses that even talk about the birth of Jesus, that you're a worshiper of Jesus. These guys knew the Old Testament version of the nativity narrative. They could have read it to their children every year around the fireplace. And they weren't worshipers of Jesus. And again, you say, why are you telling us this today? This is not good news. This is great news. Or maybe it is at least a half step toward great news. Because it could be just the very thing that causes you, by the grace of God, to see there is the worship of Jesus... And there is the rejection of Jesus. And that's what we have. And we all fall into one of those categories. And some of us who fall into the category of a non-worshipper, a rejecter, have lots of the external adornments of being worshipers. And maybe it's because we don't want to identify and be associated with, you know, other people who didn't come from the right background who worshiped Jesus and gave him their all. The Zoroastrian astrologer magi. Last people I want to be associated with. They were part of a false religion, and they were. But by the grace of God, their hearts changed and they followed Jesus and worshipped Him. I say, all right then. That's what I want to do. I can do that by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. I hope you know your Bible and you can give Bible answers. I hope you pray Those things are so good and right. I hope you can tell your kids the birth narrative. These things are good and right, but please don't hold on to that as a guarantee that you're a worshiper of Jesus because it just isn't so. 
But by the grace of God, hopefully you're feeling this, this uh, affection and desire and, 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 and love for who Jesus really is. And, and you want to be, who care of uh, the mindset, who cares who I'm identified with, even, yeah, it doesn't matter to me, I just want to worship Him and give Him my all. Well, that's the grace of God. That causes us to say we praise God for this reality because given uh, ourselves and left alone, we wouldn't do this. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, thus the reason why I probably reference it so often, is Psalm 2.12. And in Psalm 2.12, it's a messianic psalm. And it's so good because it's talking about the, the, the coming judgment of God and, 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 and really the, the, the iron-fisted judgment of God. And it's really a hardcore kind of psalm. But it gives the answer regarding how to avoid that strong, breaking, forceful judgment from God. It gives the answer on how to avoid that wrath from God. And it says it so magnificently. It says, kiss the sun, which is another way, which is why some of your translations say pay homage to or worship. But the image is kissing. Because what would you do to show humility before a king in the ancient world? You would bow down and be low and show that he is above you and you would kiss perhaps his hand or you would even kiss perhaps his feet and you would bow down and you would kiss the king. And by kissing the king, you're acknowledging his sovereignty over you, and therefore you're a willing subject, and you're not showing defiance and opposition toward him. And that's the image that the Bible gives to us that represents one of the images of Jesus. Psalm 2 is referenced many, many times in the New Testament, referring to Jesus. So the invitation is, kiss the Son. Worship the Son. And it goes on to say, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. I would just echo those words. Kiss the Son. Worship the Son. Adore the Son. Because it is in His protection and in His strength that you will be guarded from the just judgment of the Son. It's great. It's a great, great, great picture of God's perfect plan. We find protection and safety when we embrace the Son. And we find protection and safety ultimately from the Son who will come to rule and reign and He will come and He will come as a judge bearing a sword. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Love the Son. Worship the Son. Be like a Magi. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You so much for the Christmas season. It's filled with so many crazy things and there's so much about it that we like and so much about it that we don't like and uh, it's overwhelming for good and it's overwhelming for bad. And Lord, in the end, it doesn't matter. What matters is that You did come here and You came here because of your love and because of your grace so that we could be spared so that we could become one of your children we could become your children by your grace and according to your great mercy 
Lord, may many, many, many people hear, whether it be right here this morning or even as a result of the testimony as we seek to, to communicate with others lovingly, may many, many, many people kiss the Son, embrace the Son, and not be deluded by religion, deluded by self-centeredness or self-righteousness. God, may we see more and more folks added to the great, great cloud of witnesses who praise You and exalt You because it's what You deserve. You're the King, the Savior, the Great One, the Gracious One. In Jesus' name, Amen.